It's bad ink jam, but not as we know it. This is bad. Welcome to the Bashcast, brought to you by BoogieBashing.net, betting at 100.1 and above. This is Bashcast episode number 158. Cool as a cucumber. It is 29 minutes past three on Friday the 26th of June 2020. And we have survived the zombie apocalypse of 2020. Coming up in this afternoon's Bashcast, we're talking about sport again. We have a look at the PGA, the Travellers. Uh, and uh, the large value edge that we got from the coronavirus and COVID-19. Um, have a look at some stats such as driving distance, scrambling percentages, and also last week's RBC Heritage. Some football edges in um, headers, goals scored outside of the area and expected shots on target and we review a match between Leverkusen and FC Köln that was of particular note in that field and how much money haven't I made betting unders on cards post lockdown after the break the 1929 US Open gets recapped and they're trying to stop us gambling again, all of that and more coming up in this afternoon's Bashcast. Hey, welcome back, Bashcats. Does that work? That's a bit Adam Buxton, that, isn't it? No, we're not going to run with that. We'll put that one to bed. 
Hope everyone is well. I have made the square root of sweet FA in the last couple of months because I haven't done anything. Normally, like for a few, for a long period of time, I would start the Bashcast with a report on how much money I would make. So I can honestly tell you that I have made nothing. I haven't spent anything either, though. It's like everyone else's joint accounts with their wives, like monthly spending accounts bursting at the seams. Mine is. Like, haven't been spending money on going out for meals, haven't been spending money on clothes. Um, so... Does that count as being up? Can I use that? <laughs> Maybe it doesn't. But it's good to be back. We'll try and get back to a little bit more routine. The kids are back in nursery now, and that has a knock-on effect that it frees up a little bit more of my time. And so I personally hope that the um, bash cast, bashed casts can be slightly more regular now, instead of the once a month I drop down to during lockdown. So we'll see how that goes. In the background just now, we have the PGA tournament. It's the Friday, so it's round two. So we'll go uh, straight into the golf. So good to have the PGA back. You think the PGA um, could have continued uh, through lockdown because social distancing seems to be a little bit easier, say, on a golf course than it does on a football field. But events this week leading up to the travellers um, have been a star reminder that, you know, everybody is at risk of this COVID disease. So a very interesting Tuesday evening, Wednesday evening, sorry, just before the tees on Thursday morning. First tee was Thursday, 11.45 a.m. UK time. Around about 8 p.m. the Wednesday night, we started hearing that the PGA were going to um, issue an announcement about some withdrawals from the tournament um, due to either testing positive to having coronavirus or perhaps somebody in their household or their caddy had tested positive. And all in all, um, it was Sebastian Capellan. Um, sorry, he came in. It was Cameron Champ, Graham McDowell, Brooks Koepka, Brooks Koepka's little brother, um, is it Champ Koepka? I think C. Koepka. And Webb Simpson were all out. And Sebastian Capellan, David Hearn, Tim Wilkinson, Robert Streb and Tyler McCucumber all came in. And um, Tyler McCucumber is actually... I thought all these guys would be no-hopers, like they didn't qualify for the event, and they were the fringe players. Um, and if you look at it, we had 8.5% um, of the win probability taken out just by Brooks Koepka and Webb Simpson. Um, but to be fair, McCucumber came in, and shot i think six under par um on day one five under par on day one to put him in the top 10 um he is a he, he's not left-handed he's a raita handed golfer raita mccucumber is a raita no that's not that's sorry that's really bad but he genuinely seems like the real dill um he's not just a fringe player he is the real 
Dill, this guy, um, even though he, his scrambling does seem to be a little bit below par, uh, he does get himself into a pickle now and again. That's enough of that. That is genuinely enough of that. That's disgusting. In fact, nobody's nobody's enjoying themselves listening to this nonsense. Um, it's actually a massive um, edge to be had on the Wednesday night as a result of this because the bookmakers um, have been paying um, some serious concessionary places um, for a non-major since the return to golf. Um, Skybet have been playing nine places in every tournament. William Hill, eight places online, seven places in store. But on the Monday, they're top price on everybody. So there are loads of places and top price. Uh, we have to get the model sorted out to subtract one place off the online prices to get them in shop. And then they start with exactly the same prices, including matching the top prices, but then they deviate. So it's a little bit difficult to track on uh, shop prices, but we're going to figure something out there with tracking because there's undeniable value there. We've got, got to take advantage of it. Um, Paddy Power have been offering 10, 9, 8 places. But look, one of the weird things, I, I've had a... Um, Get this for a statement. This is why I really love the golf. I've had a, a shocker of a return to golf. I have done um, pretty badly in the Charles Schwab and the RBC Heritage out of um, out of 26 golfers, although Cameron Tringali um, withdrew before the start of the RBC Heritage. So 25 golfers. I've covered 10% of the field in both tournaments. I've only had one place in both tournaments. That was Justin Rose, who squeezed into a place at 50-1 to 1 in the Charles Schwab. And JT Poston... Incidentally, they should just call themselves James Poston because the headaches that you have with these guys who use their initials, and then sometimes they, when you're matching them and looking them up on the model, it's sometimes J dot J T dot Poston or J T Poston or just use well, just James is fine. He was um, squeezed into eighth place with six tying players, and um, when Skybet were playing nine, however, and get this. Nine's a lot of places anyway, and we're seeing a lot of value for Sky on the tracker. They paid out in full to everybody. They're not advertising that they're paying out dead heat places in full, but effectively that means that they paid 14 places in the RBC Heritage, which is an obscene amount of number of places to be paying um, when standard is five. And going into the Travellers' Championship, they were paying nine places on 154 golfers, but then five withdraw, including Koepka and Webb Simpson, who together form 8.5% probability, about 12 to 1 probability of winning the event. So we're getting paid obscene places. We're having all of these withdrawals. All of a sudden, I doubled my portfolio. So I went from 10% of the field covered to 20% of the field covered on... Wednesday night because there was just a huge edge and a huge angle to be had um, with that news that Simpson, Koepka and a couple of others were coming out. Of course, if McCucumber ends up winning this tournament, then uh, he will be having the last laugh. At the moment, it's only round one gone by. Mackenzie Hughes shot 10 under par. You do get some really 
short, um, some really low scores at TPC River Island, par 70 course. Um, Jim Furyk's gone around in 58, 58 and 59. I think last year, um, Ches Reevy won it, but try and get the top four here, okay? Ches Reevy won it by four shots at 70 to one. Um, and then one shot behind Zach Suker at 350 to one and Keegan Bradley at 110 to one. And then Vaughan Taylor at 225 to one. So the top four, 70, 350, 110 and 225 to one. Definitely difficult to pick out the winner um, last year. However, if you'd looked at driving accuracy because TV, TPC... Um, River Highlands is definitely a course which rewards accuracy, being able to hit the fairways, not deviating it. In terms of percentages of fairways hit leading up to the 2019 Travelers Championship, if you ranked all of the players on the tour, you would have seen Ches Reevy at number one with um, about 79% driving accuracy so he was 70 to 1 he was driving the ball accurately and he won the tournament so whilst we have to of course bring in all the other different attributes such as off the tee um around the green i mean the main four are um, are driving approaching the green around the green and putting and we're only really looking at one sub-attribute of driving and driving accuracy. We're not looking at bombing. We're not looking at distance or anything like that. But just in terms of driving accuracy, you would have picked the winner, Ches Reevy, 70-1 last year. Jim Furyk is generally at the top of all of the driving stats. He is consistently good off the tee. He doesn't win a lot of tournaments because... He's sort of a, a freak player in that he is extremely good off the tee, not so good everywhere else. Don't trust him with his putter. Don't trust him. I think his putter, I read, cost $30. Perhaps that's something he wants to have a look at. Um, and around the green and scrambling. Um, but he, uh, there is some distance. He is an outlier in terms of driving accuracy with about 78%. Um, but if we dismiss Jim Furyk just now, the players on the tour... Um, at this moment in time that have very decent driving accuracy percentages going into this tournament include um, Bryson DeChambeau, John Ram, Patrick Cantley, Victor Hovland, Abraham Anser, Corey Connors, Ryan Moore, Ches Reevy, again, just like last year, um, Brendan Todd. So... Of those players, Victor Hovland, who I'm on, we tipped in our recommendations this week, is currently in second place. Abraham Anser got a hole-in-one, which has nothing to do with his driving accuracy, but it's, de it's decent watching him get a hole-in-one when you're on him. So sort of looking at these metrics, maybe once a week, picking out a metric for the course and then ranking the metric. And then just, be you know... Just seeing two players have the same driving accuracy doesn't mean anything. But then when you compare that against their exchange odds, well, the guy that's a higher price 
might just there might just be a little bit of equity here. This isn't really a sophisticated EV calculation. That's what the tracker's for. In any in any analysis like this, you want to perform a multi multi attribute analysis or a multi criteria decision making analysis, and that is where you take. Um, Sometimes, well, a number of different attributes or criteria, sometimes they're conflicting and sometimes they're not. For example, if you're looking to buy a car, you might want to buy a cheap car that goes very fast. Those are conflicting attributes. You tend to find that the more money you spend, the faster the car goes. So if you want to find a car that goes fast but not spend any money, you have to do certain trade-off calculations, pair-to trade-off calculations between those two attributes. Sandra Schaufoli is keeping nailing these 15 feet putts in front of me for, for pars, who I'm also on. Um, so you want to take them all together, uh, factor in how they relate to the particular course. I mean, this is how the odds compilers do it. They, they weight different attributes to be more important in this analysis. You know, driving accuracy and scrambling and bombing and putting and one put percentages and everything and they they decide that on this particular course you know on links courses it's certainly very important um to be accurate you don't want to be going too wayward on links courses on long courses you want to be obviously driving distance and things like this so it all depends on a number of things and you've got to bring in form but just looking at this one attribute a week is certainly opening up you know opening up some information from for us, making it a little bit easier, um, a little bit easier to, because you know we end up with forty-five, fifty plus EV golfers on the tracker. You don't want to be well, maybe you do. Some people might want to be getting on forty-five or fifty, but so having a look at the having a look at the travellers just now, Victor Hovland in second, Xander fully in third. Have you seen this really cool new thing that the PGATour.com have got on their website? Open up a player and you'll see a little bit red button called 3D. Press that and you go to the Tourcast. Now, I haven't seen this before. And I'm on the PGA Tour website all the time. So if this isn't new, I'm sorry, but it looks new to me. And you go into the 3D of Xander Schaufoli and it brings up live where he's standing on the course. And it's got a computer game representation of Harbour Town and I'm looking at hole number 14 just now the par 4 so it's, it's like Tiger Woods Golf on the Xbox um, you can zoom in you can zoom out you can scroll up and down along the 3D representation of the hole and every time he takes a shot you see a dotted line fly onto the hole so you can see that he's just narrowly driven to the rough on the side of the fairway at the beginning of this hole he's then gone long into the bunker at the far left hand side of the green with his second shot he has then chipped onto the green to the third and actually i just commented on for we've just seen him nail the 15 foot putt for par for the fourth it's amazing it's a, it's it's utterly quality and you can have groups on there at the same time i'm looking at this and i'm just thinking this would be an amazing tool for in-play um, betting. Because if you follow a player, and I was following Henrik Norlander yesterday because I happened to be on him um, at 400 to 1, and you see that he's going along every hole, par birdie, par birdie. He's not deviating. He's not struggling. He's not 
chipping in from the green and doing what Xander's doing today with 20-foot putts, he's being very steady and consistent, and yet the money wasn't coming down for him on the exchange. So I I took him on the exchange, uh, which I could ch- choose to either trade out if his odds come down or just leave that as a value bet. But um, a really quality tool, this Torcast. So go and have a look at it. Um Sorry, I just wanted to finish one thing as well on the attributes that we were looking at. Last week we were looking at the RBC heritage. And we looked there at scrambling percentages versus exchange odds. And we ranked the scrambling percentages. And basically the top scramblers on the tour, um, in no particular order, were Webb Simpson, who won at 80 to 1. Daniel Berger, who was second. At uh, seventy to one, and Abraham Answer, who was third. So, they are three of the top six scramblers on the entire tour, and we picked out this attribute just before the RBC Heritage, and those guys came in first, second, and third. If that happens again in the next few weeks, I'm going to start doing permutations of trebles. Uh, and reverse forecasts and things like that. Because, you know, two guys at 100 to 1 coming first and second is going to pay you out 10,000 to 1. Now, you're probably going to have to have quite a few permutations to hit it. But you're going to need 10,000 permutations. So a few um, football edges uh, post-lockdown after normal reality uh, is a distant memory to have a look at. Um, Over lockdown, when there were no games, I tried to put a few databases together so that we can quickly explore um, any value. So a couple of things that bookmakers put up, especially William Hill and Skybet and Betfred, they'll go for a header in the match or a goal outside of the area, right? And what they'll do is they'll put that up at the beginning of the day and then it will pretty much stay at that line over the day uh, unless there's a significant weight of money that forces the price down. So here's the game. We've got to be the weight of money. We've got to be the guys that figure out um, if they're out of line or not. And uh, generally at the beginning of the day, they're not. But what I seem to find is that money will come in for... um, expected goals in a match um or perhaps the expected goals will stay the same but money comes in for a team and so their split of the expected goals um by proxy if you look on the spreads and wherever obviously you know if a team shortens from 3.0 to 1.2 their own expected goals is going to increase at the same time that their match odds decreases right um, it could be the case that the XG, the expected goals in the game, doesn't move. It's just the ratio split between the favourite and the underdog changes. And what you see generally is that in a lot of these secondary markets, like obviously if Man City come in from 5-2 to two to you know 1.2, um, if you have a look on the markets, Man City to get three or more goals... All of those markets, they do change in real time. It's these secondary and tertiary markets. Uh, a header to be scored, Man City to score a header. They don't, they, you know, 
the pattern I've noticed is that those bets just they tend to be static. They seem to be just be changed by weight of money and not by differences of opinion and movement of price. So that what we're trying to do is work those odds out ourselves. And it's pretty it's gotta be pretty easy equation, right? We know we work out every day what the expected goals are for every team anyway so we've got the expected goals all we kind of have to estimate is what percentage split of the expected goals is going to be headers or goals outside the area and there are enough free databases online where we can go and get that data like statsbunker.com and from um, football data that doesn't have headers and goes outside the area it does have corners and uh, expected shots on targets and shots on target and things like that um, whoscored.com is a great resource so all of these we can get the team's historical information the first question we've got to ask though is how much of it is relevant right because we can have a look at um, a team's number of goals scored and number of headers scored and take that ratio for five years, for 10 years, for 100 years, okay? But come on, is West Bromwich Albion's um, percentage goal scored with headers the same or relevant in 1922 as it is in 2022? It's not going to be. So I think in terms of style of football, perhaps about five years arbitrarily, you might be able to argue 10, but I settled on five years worth of information is about right. But then there is a, another thing to consider. Um, so let's say Norwich are in the championship and they're walking away with the championship, right? Um, and the style of football they're playing, they're like Barcelona, right? They're just passing it all the way through the middle of the field um, and uh, playing to foot. Um, they've got the skill to turn players, um, uh, they can walk it into the area and they just tap it into the goal. They're not getting many shots from outside the area because um, they're just good enough. They're just good enough to walk it in. If you actually look at um, goals scored from outside the area across Europe, Barcelona are one of the lowest teams for that, right? In the last five years in La Liga, um, Barcelona only scored about 8%. Of their goals, eight point four six percent of their goals with headers. There is only one team in all of Europe. So I'm talking about the five main European leagues: La Liga, Serie A, Bundesliga, French League One, Premiership, and also the rest of the English leagues: the Championship, League One, League Two. There's only one team in Europe who score fewer goals um, with headers, and that's Stad Brest. Um, with 6.25% real outlier there. Whereas, flip it on its head, Salford City score 31% of their goals. 31% of their goals with headers. Um, Union Berlin, Cagliari, West Bromwich Albion, and Brescia also score, you know, high over 28% of their goals with headers. Now, this could be relevant. But we've got to think about how much of it is relevant. Because as we say, Norwich City could be in the championship 
sliding the ball along the floor. They get promoted. All of a sudden, they're overwhelmed in the Premiership. And they can't walk the ball to f- or pass the ball to foot um, when they're far up the field because they're just not good enough because the defences, the Arsenal's, um, your Chelsea's, your Manchester City's, it's too physical. They're just not good enough to get around them. So what they end up doing is these change tactics and they send the ball long. The old Arsenal 1990s tactic, boot the ball from midfield and see if somebody's lucky enough to get their head on it. So the dynamic of the strategy changes when you're the best team in the league to when you're the worst team in the league. So I think when we're looking at historical stats, that means that we should only be looking at historical stats from teams that are um, have stayed in the same division. So if you're looking at um, Barcelona, you just look at La Liga. They haven't been relegated. That's fine. But if you look at Norwich City, you can only take the years that they were in the Premiership. And if you take Brescia, you can only take the years that Brescia were in Syria A. And Brescia recently got promoted to Syria A, which means we don't have that much data for Brescia. So mentioned previously, Brescia are the second highest um, team in terms of percentage goals scored with their head in the last five years of the current league that they're in, because there's only been one year. And so we get a very small sample size of 32 goals, 28.5% of which have been scored with their head. And what all of this means is that anytime I run an analysis, I am seeing value for Brescia. Now, does that mean that that's value or it isn't value? That is a little bit harder to say. Uh, The confidence is lower when it's only one year's worth of data. I probably, in fact, no, there's no probably about it. I haven't been putting data uh, concerning breast gear on the site simply because the confidence isn't high enough to share this bet with other people. I have been betting on it myself and I have been winning. (laughs) Every game I've bet on since I've been doing this analysis where we're comparing the XG of the team um, with their historical headed stats just to get the expected number of headers in a game and then applying a normal probability distribution of that to get over zero. Every time I've been betting on a Brescia match, I've been finding value, I've been betting on it, and I've been winning. Variants could just... I could just be running hot, definitely. It's only been two or three games. Um, so we'll see. Newcastle's been another one. They seem to... I don't know who it is in the Newcastle. I think for some reason Newcastle are letting in headers is what's happening in the Newcastle games. But there always seems to be value in the Newcastle. And it's the the same argument with the um, outside the box statistics. Which we're putting up. So we've got a list of these on the site, right? The percentage splits in the last five years of the current league that the team is in. Um... And for every primary game, I'm running the analysis. So, you know, maybe up to an hour before, an hour before kickoff. Um, it's been a decent little learn at, at the start of this as well. Of course, you can get um, you can get the headed goals on, on machines. So, you know, you can walk into a William Hill, put 200, 300 pound down and get a bet on it at, at 
six to four or two to one, and you have the anonymity anonymity of the SSBT there. So you know restrictions are a lot, a little bit easier to bypass. Another one that falls into this category is expected shots on target or shots on target bets. Actually, before I leave the headers, the, the headers and the goals outside the area, um, they are very popular with the bookmakers because they can't be hedged. But they're also more focused in doing them by player. Now, just now I have the analytics to do it by team, but I don't have the confidence to do it by player because I don't have the expected goals of each player in a game. There has to be... Well, people will be working this out and supplying it to the bookmakers. It will be used for everything from player to get two plus goals, three plus goals, player to score first, player to score at all, player to score a hat-trick, um, as well as player shots on target and things like this. And sort of the derivation of this player headers and player... Um, goals outside the area would be really really useful i think we'll end up figuring it out but we haven't figured it out yet one thing that was started with is player expected shots on target the reason being you can reverse engineer it uh, if you have a look on bet 365 and bet safe those two bookmakers specifically well why those two bookmakers they're pretty random well they're the bookmakers that on pretty much every premiership game during lockdown, every Bundesliga game, a few Serie A, a few uh, La Liga, they offer player shots on target bets. They offer the over and they offer the under. And it's so critical that they offer the under as well. Um, because if they just offer the over, like William Hill, Bethesda Sportsbook, um, Paddy Power, Skybet, if they just offer the over, they could be offering anything. But when they offer the under as well, at least there is some sharp money that is ensuring that they're not taking the piss. And I think that Paddy and Betfair Sportsbook do take the piss. Because there are some players where to get one shot on target or more, the line is so different between Bet365 and Betsafe and Paddy Power and Betfair Sportsbook. Not on all players, but on some of them. Seems to be popular players as well. Last night it was Jay Rodriguez. He was 1.63 to get a shot on target at Bet365. 1.2 at Betfair Sportsbook and Paddy. What's the difference? What can we do when we're seeing one line at one bookmaker and one line at another bookmaker? Well, at least Bet365 are offering the under, right? So if the 1.6 that they're offering is huge value for the over, which Betfair Sportsbook and Paddy would lead you to believe with where they've got the line from, then bet the under, right? Oh, sorry, bet that over. Or if they're completely out of line, if they're completely out of line and they're offering ridiculously low odds, bet the under. And by betting the under, having both um, sides there, they'll be shaped pretty quickly. Whereas if they're just offering the over, like Betfair Sportsbook, they could offer anything they want. They could offer a 1 to 100. As long as people are putting money on it, they don't care. So we can take the um, under and the over lines and we can use reverse iteration to estimate what the mean was that they used to develop those lines 
So what I do is I take Bet365 and I take BetSafe. I do the reverse iteration from all players on those lines, work out what the expected shots on target is at both bookmakers and then take the most pessimistic. That's my theory. And if we're always taking the most pessimistic from the two bookmakers, in the long run, we'll probably be fine. We'll probably, if anything, we'll be missing out on a few bets, but I'd rather here miss out on a few bets that are wrong um, than be betting on negative EV bets. So we know the mean, well, we're estimating the mean. Now, the question has been, if we know what the odds of one plus shots and target are, how does it go to two shots on target, three shots on target, four shots on target, and over and over and over? Because in football, we're very aware of the concept of clustering in corners. And that is that if you get a corner in football, the odds of you getting another corner have suddenly improved. It's not a linear distribution. It's not an equal distribution amongst all the corners in the game. Um, and this is because of clustering. When you have a corner, uh, there's a very good chance you're going to take that corner and the ball, because of the position of the field and the nature of the defending, is going to end up behind the goal and you're going to get a second corner. Your odds of that next corner have already have improved by the nature of you having one corner. If you actually have a look on flash scores, you'll see like long periods of the match, no scores, and then there's a corner, 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 and that, sorry, long period of the match with no corner, and then corner, 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 and then long period with no corner, and corner, 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 corner. That's why William Hill did this distribution bet, corner every 15 minutes of the match, because you can't just take the corners and divide them by six to get that. You need to factor in the clustering problem that there is with corners. Does it exist with shots and target? You could argue, you could argue it both ways. Um, you could say that someone gets a shot on the target, keeper saves it. A shot on target is only is either a goal or the keeper saves it. If a defender saves it, it's not a shot on target. So the keeper could save it, it rebounds back out to you, and you have another attempt on goal. I thought that might have been a thing. And then I started looking at the probability distributions that were available at Betfair Sportsbook and Paddy. Whilst we can't use them to work out what the expected means are from reverse iteration, we can use them to see what they're doing to jump from one to two to three to four expected shots on target on all of the players that they have. So whilst the actual numbers aren't interesting, the shape of the curves that they're using as they go from one plus shot on target to four plus shots on target is interesting. And what do we find when we look at that? They are using pretty much exactly a normal probability distribution. Nothing more, nothing less. No adjustment, no nothing. Meaning no clustering. Meaning they are, they're considering shots on target to be independent events. Which are kind of, maybe that's true. Maybe because players have so few shots on target per game on average. The shots on target, they're not really related it doesn't happen that often that a keeper saves the ball, it lands back at your feet, and you have another go at a shot on target. You know, It might happen once in a while, but it doesn't happen enough to be statistically relevant to affect the mean. Or if you start faffing around adjusting a probability distribution to take account of this, we go back to Occam's razor, you're, you're making it significantly more complicated for not a lot of benefit. So... 
well, I'm convinced that we're looking at a normal probability distribution for shots on target, right? Meaning we don't need to adjust it for costas. We can just work out what the mean is and go from one to two to three to four quite easily. Leverkusen versus um, FC Köln in the Bundesliga on the 17th of June 2020 was an interesting match for shots on target. So in this match, um, at the beginning of the day, I had a look at the markets. Didn't find anything um, value in this match at Skybet using the lines that I had. Over the day, from about lunchtime until 7.30, Leverkusen steamed in from 1.8 to 1.47. The been some information about something that to this day I don't know what caused it but FC Köln have been terrible they had a great start to the season they've been awful in the second half of the season and they've been awful after um, lockdown so Leverkusen became big favourites for this game they started off at 1.8 so they went into 1.47 their XG the, the, the Leverkusen team expected goals pushed out from 1.95 to 2.35 so increased by 0.4 the xg of the game stayed the same but the ratio started becoming a lot more on leverkusen's side right and this harps back to the argument that we just said that the bookmakers put up certain bets and then they just leave them there there are plenty of bets that don't follow Changes in lines, changes in expected wins or expected goals or things like that. Now, I have a relationship for shots on target that I found from just the win odds. I didn't, I thought I would have to bring in XG into this equation, but it was amazing. If you plot the last. 20,000 matches. You can do this in any 20,000 matches, right? Go and, go and see if you can get the, get some data and do this. Plot the shots on goal on one axis and the probability of the team winning from 0 to 1 on another axis. And by probability of team winning, I mean, you know, the decimal, the reciprocal of the decimal odds. And... Um, what you see over these 12,000 matches is that there is a very clear linear relationship between the odds of a team winning and the number of shots on goal they got in that match. Roughly, if you draw a regression analysis trendline, roughly you can take the number of shots on target... Sorry, you can take the probability of the team winning in decimal odds, multiply it by 5.9768, add on 2.04, and you end up with the number of shots on target they're going to get in that game with an R squared, which is a statistical um, representation of how well this relationship is fitting, of 96%, which is a good R squared. In fact, it's so good... You can argue, one, there is a relationship here, and two, the relationship is quite clear. It's not a perfect fit, 
But in the world of estimating how many shots on target we're going to see in a game from a team, it's definitely good as an indicator. Now, so very roughly, I can take the odds of any team and work out the shots on target just by looking at the odds, right? We could probably improve this by bringing in XG and things like this, but this is just a rough indicator. So in this game, along with the fact that we were seeing evidence that Leverkusen's XG was increasing on the exchange and their shots on target was increasing, my estimation, over the day as they reduced in a win price from 1.8 to 1.47, all of a sudden the model that I have threw up a bet at Skybet, which is Leverkusen to get six shots on target, four corners, and 30 booking points at 2 to 1. It was 3, 3.25 at the beginning of the day. It came all the way into 3, 2.6, simply because of the steam or the increase in the expected shots of target. And I had to reality check all of this because it was the first one of these expected shots and targets bets that I'd seen. I've been modeling and monitoring a load, but I've never seen one go from so negative EV to so positive EV. And if you check through all of the steps, it all makes sense. Um, so the game finished 3-1 Leverkusen, just to be completely results-orientated. Um... There were six shots on target for Leverkusen. And there were 30 booking points in the game. Um, and also Leverkusen got seven corners. There you go. I just thought that that one was just trying to add it all together and it, to make sure it made sense, and it did. Looking at more trends, apparently everyone's been banging on about the loss of home advantage. And then saying, look at the Bundesliga, all the away teams in the draw are um, either drawing or winning in the Bundesliga. And yeah, there, there was actually a noticeable shift um, in performance of away teams against their odds after lockdown in the Bundesliga. There was also the opposite in Bundesliga 2, who also have no crowds, right? So just because... Um, there's a relationship there over 19 matches doesn't mean that you have to you have to draw any necessary conclusions from it. the standard deviation is huge when you're looking at small sample sizes um another one that you know i drew this conclusion as well um if you look at the 218 from memory 288 sorry um matches before lockdown in the Premiership, the average number of booking points is 38.08 per game, right? We're looking at, roughly, we're looking at 1.62 yellows at home, 1.8 yellows for away, and about 0 0.06 reds for each team in the game. So 38 booking points before lockdown, and then after lockdown, small sample size, I'm looking at 12 games here up till Manchester City Burnley the other night. 28 booking points for those 12 games per match. So from 38 to 28, it's a considerable shift. The argument being um, the referee doesn't have crowd influence, booing and hissing and making him issue yellow cards. Um, you know, the number of games that have ended up with like no yellows or no booking points in it. 
or just 10, just one booking point has been quite crazy. Um, so, so, of course, like last night, tried to explore if uh, there was any if there was any edge there. And as usual, you know, I've got to have skin in the game to actually care enough to monitor this. So I had a Trixie, just a £50 Trixie on um, under booking points on the lines that were available at Betfred for Burnley Watford, which I think was under 35, Southampton Arsenal, which was under 40, and Chelsea Man City, which was under 35. Um, and so, of course, there were two red cards last night. Right? I mean, this is stupid to say. Really stupid to say. Don't listen to the next words I'm about to say because it's about as stupid as an advantage player value better can say. If it wasn't for those red cards, <laughs> the bet would have won, obviously. <laughs> but what I'm saying there is that there wasn't like a smattering of yellows and it would have lost anyway. There was yellows, there were only two in the Southampton match, one in the Burnley match and two in the um, Chelsea match. Um it's just we got very late red cards for Fernandinho and Ste- Stevens in those games, which, um, you know, 10 for a yellow, 25 for a red. And when you're betting unders and booking points, red cards pretty much just going to kill you. Um, but I'll go in again. Uh, maybe it's just variance. It makes sense, though, that there are fewer booking points. Also, I think just because there's a pattern there, doesn't mean that there's an edge there because the bookmakers may be may have adjusted as well. I thought that the lines were a little lower than I'd hoped for last night when I was um when I was betting on these booking points. Um and so um I think I'll I'll give it a I'll give it a little monitor over the weekend. The, the problem with waiting for enough data for these things is that the season will be over by the time you wait for enough data. So if we're gonna be averaging twenty-eight booking points per match every game between now and the end of the season, then betting under... I can't see the line ever being 25 or less. So betting under 30 and under 35 in multiples, in a series of multiples. Um, I'll tell you what, I'll put my money where my mouth is. We're saying it now on the 26th of June 2020 on the Bashcast. I'll make a little note of it so that I don't forget and I'll return to it. Let's see what would have happened if we just bet... Every game between now, the under on whatever line the bookmaker is offering, obviously might just be a little bit clever, and if Betfred are offering a better line than William Hill, let's go with Betfred. But in the standard high street bookie, so we can all get a bet on, let's have a look at what line we can get. Let's bet the under any time that that line is 28 and above, and let's see how much our profit losses at the end of the season. Make a note of that now. Booking points for the end of the season. All right, guys. Um, That's probably enough for the first half. You are listening to the Bashcast, and it's brought to you by BuckyBashing.net. Wait till the end of time.
Alone by Olive. Frankie Wah remix on his album The Revival Volume 1 2020. In the bookie bashing news, spent some time in lockdown, not making any money. Having a look at um, the stories of old US Opens and old, old golf major tournaments. So, pop quiz, hot shots. Who has a record? of playing 31 majors and winning 13 of them. I think that's right. I hope my memory is right there. Something like that. 13 out of 31 majors. There you go. Yeah, just confirmed. And top 10, 27 times. Um, it was a young man called Bobby Jones, born 1902, passed away in 1971. Um who founded and helped design the Augusta National Golf Club and co-founded 
the US Masters. Um, so I was having a look at the scorecards from the 1929 US Open, which was held between June the 27th and June the 30th at the Winged Foot Golf Club in Mamaroneck in New York. Um, Bobby Jones came into this and in these first three rounds he shot 69 the only round in the 60s from anybody 75 and 71 in his first three rounds he had a three shot lead going into the fourth round against Gene Saritson who's a professional golfer however um, they were both another four shots clear of Al Espinosa. So there was sort of Bobby Jones out in front, three shots ahead of Gene Saracen, who was himself four shots ahead of Espinosa. Um, now Saracen fell out of contention in the final round. He shot a 78th. So that kind of just leaves... Bobby Jones, seven shots ahead of Espinosa, who shot 75 and 294 in total. And it appeared that that would be enough for Jones. Um, and on the 15th hole, he only needed three bogeys and a par to win the US Open in 1929. So he triple bogeys the 15th, then goes bogey on the 16th, and that was enough to destroy his lead he made par on the 17th but he hit the greenside bunker on the 18th and needed to get up and down in two shots to save par and force a playoff and if you search on twitter there's a there's a photograph of him with this 12 foot putt to tie for the u.s open to go into a playoff in 1929 this is total phil mickelson territory this and he nails the putt. So how long is the playoff? Is it one hole? Is it three holes? No, in 1929, they played a 36-hole playoff, <laughs> which started on the Sunday. And Bobby Jones beat Espinosa this year. And it's the reason I came to this, because it's the largest victory of margin in any major although you could say that the 72 holes were tied. Bobby Jones beat Espinosa by 23 shots in the 1929 US Open. Um, he shot 69 on his second round of 18. Espinosa shot 80. Imagine taking all the sort of dramatic joy. Imagine seeing that. On late on a Sunday night, they go and do another 18 holes, but with six holes to go, the tournament is over. So, Bobby Jones, winner of the 1929 US Open. So, um, the... The protesters, the virtue signalers, the people in our society who care most about protecting us from vulnerable vices are yet again voicing, voicing their opinion that 
gambling is out of control and there's too many gambling ads on TV and too many people gambling and gambling, 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 gambling. Um, the Guardian seem to be slightly confused where they are very pro horse racing um, and they, they have a sort of a, a, um, a regular article about the state of the betting industry which then leads straight into sort of tips of the day in horse racing it's almost like it's sponsored and then every now and again we'll pick up the story of some campaigners some pro-government lobbyists um, who are attempting to sort of rid the world of the evil vice of gambling. There is a disconnect between reality and media reporting of gambling. Um, there are some who are very anti-gambling and their voices are very loud and they do not like the industry being as big as it, uh, big as it is. But it's very popular with a huge number of people. And ask yourself, you might not like McDonald's. Do you like it enough to try and ban it? Or do you dislike it enough to try and ban it? And yes, banning it would be better for the health of the society in total. But how many people out there, um, including myself, like going and having six chicken nuggets every now and again, knowing that overall I'm eating fine and I'm exercising and it's under control because that's... In my opinion, that's my libertarian right. I've, I'm looking after myself. I'm responsible for my own health and that of my family. And if I want to feed my kids and myself junk and not do anything, it's, that's also my right. Though we can get into arguments about costs to NHS another time. I'm um, deviating away from what's going on in the gambling world. There is probably a little bit of... little bit of caution or worry that should be had over Ian Duncan Smith's lobbyist group in government who are calling for whole-scale changes to the online sports betting scene. Essentially, they um, okay, there are some elements that are designed to look after vulnerable customers. And don't get me wrong, right? It's very important when we're talking about libertarianism to talk about the fact that the majority of responsible people, if not all, should have the right to do what they like as long as it's bringing no harm to anybody else. As long as it's illegal, but it should only be illegal, really, if it's bringing harm to others. Um, and if I want to gamble 90% of my wages, it should be my right. And when a grandfather went on a... Um, the hottest of lucky runs in the World Series of Poker main event the year that I was over there a couple of years ago, 2017, 16 was it? He was posted up as a front page news as this lovable grandfather whose usual poker tournament was five or ten pound buy-in and here he is against the world's professionals in Las Vegas making the November 9 and winning millions. At no point was the narrative of the story... The fact that he comes from a caravan park, or sorry, he he managed the caravan park. His usual buy-in to a poker tournament was five or ten pounds, and he had stumped up ten thousand dollars in a hugely negative equity game to play against the best in the world. And no point was that the narrative because it didn't fit. It was a jovial story, and yet all of a sudden we have a narrative of the evils of gambling, of people spending, you know. 
10% of their monthly income, 20%, 30%, and there really is nobody to decide um, who, what percentage of your monthly income is right for you, okay? I've made hundreds of thousands of pounds in the last couple of years from gambling on sports and various other means of gambling and poker and things like that. And outside my house, just now, my car cost me three and a half thousand pounds. I've said it before. I'm the least, I'm the opposite of a petrol head. I don't like cars. I think they're ugly and dirty. I use it as a means to get from the shops and the convenience of taking my kids to see their grandparents. Um, the stupidest thing in the entire world is when I see 21-year-olds driving around in 30,000-pound brand-new BMWs when they won't, they, those same 21-year-olds won't earn 30,000 pounds a year. It's, it's completely dumb. We're going through a process of buying a new house just now. One of the things when we're buying a new house is that I don't have any monthly payments for things like furniture and cars and stuff like that because I'd rather buy them outright. And what happens when you buy them outright? You tend not to get the latest model and the most expensive model. You know what I mean? So I'm very safe with cars. Um, and yet I spend a lot of money on meals and whatever. It's, it's my choice. This, this It's completely my choice how much I spend per month on my car, very little, and how much on meals, relatively quite a lot. But they are campaigning, they're campaigning for online bookmaker deposits to be £50 per week and max online stakes to be £5 each way. Um, the two immediate problems that we have here is £50 per week is a large amount of money to somebody who is perhaps claiming benefits and a ridiculously small amount of money to a investment banker in London or to a doctor or to a lawyer. Um, do you have many friends that earn 60, 70, 80, 100 grand a year? Imagine telling them they can't have 60 pounds deposited into a, a bookmaker and placed on Manchester City to beat Watford because the government have said that, you know, despite them earning 100,000 pounds a year, 60 pounds is too much to deposit in one week. So that's the first problem. The second problem is cumulative deposits and withdrawals have to count. I could win. There's a, there's a very famous two plus two thread about somebody that won, um, won the Sunday Million on... Poker Stars, it's a $215 buy-in event every Sunday. You win it, you would win um, $200,000 on an average week. Um, there's a million dollars guaranteed. And this guy usually played 5 or $10 tournaments. And he satellited into the Sunday Million, and he won it, and he won $200,000. And within an hour, he was playing high-stakes professional poker players at $20, $40 lines on Omaha tables and he burnt through his $200,000 within within a few hours that evening and this is it I mean like technically over 24 hours he was net zero but technically over two or three hours after winning the Sunday million he was down $200,000 it's very difficult to strategize and control people's betting behavior over deposit limits, arbitrary deposit limits. 
Also, the risk that people are facing is much different depending on the magnitude of the odds that they're betting at. Somebody that likes to bet at 100 to 1 every single week has a different amount of risk to somebody that likes to bet at 1 to 10. And all of that has to be factored in. If I'm betting at 100 to 1 every week, perhaps my maximum deposit should be £50. But if I'm betting at 1 to 100, I'm only going to be winning 50p in every bet. Max online stakes to be £5 each way is where that completely falls down and falls out the window. So it's almost as if these um, recommendations have been written by somebody that doesn't know what they're talking about. Or they either that or they do know what they're talking about and they're being deliberately misleading, perhaps because they are a co-founder in Gamban, which charges customers a monthly fee for cooling off and self-exclusion software. Step forward, Matt Zarb Cousin, who is campaigning as part of this government group by Ian Duncan Smith for restrictions on gambling online and happens to be a major equity shareholder in an, a company that will monitor spending limits online and he will become an extremely wealthy individual at the cost of restrictions on everybody's life. And for anyone that appreciates freedom of movement, freedom of thought and freedom of libertarianism, this guy should be called out for the shyster that he really is. Okay, guys, look, I would run through what's coming up, but it's the Travellers this weekend. There's a smattering of FA Cup and football on, and I'm off to my mate's barbecue. He is 42 today. It is the life, the answer to everything, whatever it is that you're doing. I hope you have the answer to everything. This is Tom, signing out. <laughs>